One of the things that we talked about last week, and there's a few kind of slides that we showed last week that'll come up, but one of the things that we talked about was this reality that we all have these things in our lives, these things that are awkward or difficult or painful, things we don't like or are uncomfortable, uh, and they are symptoms of bigger issues. But a lot of times, instead of addressing the bigger issues, we just try and manage the symptoms that we see showing up in our lives. Instead of trying to to dig into the root of what the challenge is in the relationship, we're just trying to make sure it looks okay when we go out around friends and family members. Instead of trying to uh, address our own health issues, what's at the root of those, we just try and, uh, you know, let out a seam in the waist of my pants. I've never done that, but I've heard of other people, you know, there's these things, instead of trying to actually deal with what's at the core uh, we try and just manage um, the, the, the symptoms of this thing. And so what we talked about last week and how we started this off was with this idea of talking about sin as something uh, that's not a, a word that we want to use to attack each other with. It's not a word that we want to label ourselves with and, and, and kind of view how lowly and worthless and disgusting we are. But sin is any sort of activity or action that gets in the way of the life that God is intending for us to live, the way he intended for things to be. We talked about how in the beginning God created the world to be a place of shalom. I think we have a slide uh, for that. There, there's maybe like two, two lines on there. Um, sin is the culpable, or we can blame sin for the disturbance of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew idea of divine peace, balance, and wholeness. Uh, this idea that nothing is myth- missing and nothing is broken. This, I mean, divine peace, balance, and wholeness. I don't know a single person that wouldn't like sign up for that, right? I was at an eight-year-old birthday party yesterday, and it took about seven minutes before I was like, I would love some divine peace and balance and wholeness. Uh, But this reality, so sin is what happens that disturbs the way that God intended for us to experience peace, the way that God intended for us to experience balance and wholeness. Sin is what steps in and does these things. And so sin is essentially any action that works against, that goes against the full life that God intended for us. We spent a lot of time talking last week about how this idea, the word sin or talking about our sin, we don't want to talk about this as it's not the primary defining thing about you. Because it's not. God's love is the primary defining thing about you. And in Jesus, sin has been defeated. The power of sin has been defeated. And we actually have the power to overcome sin. It takes intentionality and work. But we talked about this idea that the reality is is that when we're tempted with sin, uh, we can remind ourselves that sin is not our master. Um, Sin is not our master anymore. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, uh, we don't have to do what sin tells us to do, what temptation is inviting us to do. We actually can say, I don't have to do this anyway. I have the freedom to do something different now. But obviously, it's not always just that easy. Uh, we, we don't just flip that switch. And so when we sin, when we fall to temptation, when we make mistakes, there's this other reality that sin does not define me. Once we put our trust in Jesus, he doesn't see us as these, well, I cleaned you up one time, but you went and played in the mud again, and so now I've got to give you a bath. It's not the situation where we go back and we ruin what he has already done for us. He still sees us as loved children of his. He sees us as accepted and forgiven. We were forgiven once and for all. It's this ongoing forgiveness, this ongoing grace. And so sin, when we, when we make these mistakes, it doesn't define us. We are defined by God's love. We're defined by his acceptance of us. We're defined by his, the identity that he sees in us. 
uh, sin now is something that we start to realize, okay, so now it, it's not affecting my eternal life if I put my trust in Jesus. Now it's just causing issues at work. Now it's causing issues for me in my marriage. It's causing issues for me with my kids or my friends. It's causing issues for me for wherever these things might be. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? I'm flying here because I wanted to give a quick recap because we're jumping into, last week was a setup week, and actually, I mean, if you want to go back and listen to it, it's about 30 minutes, you can find a podcast on whatever you you listen to podcasts on, Um, but we're going to jump into this week and get started. Uh, It was maybe 10, well, it was probably 13 or 14 years ago, this story goes way back, Uh, but it scarred me for life, Uh, and so I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I, I was probably at the time, I was probably 22, maybe 21, 20, somewhere in that range, uh, hanging out with a bunch of friends, and, uh, you know, we were idiots. Uh, you know, we were, we were all just playing around, joking around, trying to, you know, doing things that 20-year-olds do and, and trying to, like, push each other to do crazier things or, cra- oh, I bet you can't do this or I bet you can't do that. Or, like, I for sure can do that better than you can or whatever these things go on. And there was this moment where somebody said, well, Chris, I, I bet you can't do a cartwheel, which I had never done in my life. And I said, well, of course I can do a cartwheel. That's not a problem for me at all, having never done one in my life. Uh, is anybody, how many of you guys can do a cartwheel? Like you've, you've functionally done one. Okay. So, one guy in the room. <laughs> uh, yeah. So very confident, you know, maybe a little too confident. I, I go and I, I do my little wind-up situation. I'm like, oh, I've seen this on TV. I've seen people do this before. I've seen like seven-year-old girls do this. And, you know, it's like, so you kind of just do this motion. And like, I, I feel like I got enough momentum. I can swing my body this way. So I go through the process, and I can't reenact the whole thing because, like I said, I'm scarred. And apparently, I, like, planted this foot a little bit too hard. And so when my legs swung up, I pulled a muscle. uh, And collapsed on the ground like a giant baby. Uh, And it obviously did not go what I want. But I, I, I... Pick myself up, like, oh, <laughs> that's funny. I'll try it again. You know, it's like one of these things, like, I'll do it again the next time. I just, you know, I needed, it was the, there was something on the ground that, you know, threw me off. Kind of brushed this whole thing off, and, but I was in a massive amount of pain. And sure enough, I ended up, the next day it was even worse, and I had to go to the ER, and they gave me these medicines because I, like, fully, like, had ruined a muscle in my body, and uh, I was on crutches for two weeks because of this cartwheel, cartwheel, the desire to do a cartwheel, the desire to do, uh, to prove to everybody in this situation that I could not only do one, but that it wouldn't even be an issue for me. It was ridiculous. This is kind of like the most basic version of pride, right? This is kind of the most basic idea or concept of pride, the desire to be seen as better than others, you know, when you think of pride, that, it's kind of that idea of like, oh, they're prideful. They, they think that they're above us. They're better than us. They, they can do things uh, better than we can do things. And I think we all have these moments when our pride shows up. If we think through our lives, we can probably all figure out some example of a time when we wanted to be seen as superior to someone else. Uh, for me, the easiest one to think of 
is like from 15 years ago, uh, but I'm sure that there has been at least a moment since then. Uh, but there's these things, but, but many of us, we don't know that we wrestle with this aspect of pride on an ongoing basis. It's not like, man, I, I really feel like I am just better than people all the time. You know, I don't know how many of us would like raise our hand if I did that poll, which I'm not. Uh, maybe we've never uh, really struggled with the idea of thinking that we are better than we truly are. But like all of the seven deadly sins or the vices, as we started calling them last week, it's easier to identify this in other people than it is in ourselves. It's easy to think of other people as prideful. Like, yeah, obviously they're, they're prideful. Uh, I'm not prideful. I'm just self-confident. Uh, it's different. Uh, they are arrogant. I'm not arrogant. I'm just pursuing excellence. Uh, you know, it's like we kind of give ourselves these little, like, trap doors of, yeah, it's, it's easy. Obviously, they are, but not me. I have the right heart behind my, uh, you know, whatever these things are. We, we kind of give ourselves these little trap doors, these little escapes, because we don't want to be considered prideful or vain or snobby or demanding, uh, these things that kind of go along with this theme. But what if this actually is a struggle for you, for myself? What if this is a vice for us? What if you're just kind of misreading yourself or making excuses? As I said last week, we, we talked about the seven deadly sins, and we said it's not, uh, the seven deadly sins isn't talking about an individual choice you've made, but it's talking about an ongoing challenge that you wrestle with. It's not just talking about, oh, that one time I was prideful. It's saying, uh, these seven deadly sins are, man, pride is a theme that I, I wrestle with in my life on an ongoing basis. It's a bigger umbrella of challenges that I have. These are seven categories, and, and we all have our preferred ways of circumventing God to get what we want. And they basically all fall into these seven categories. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, lust, and gluttony. Uh, all of these uh, categories, all of these umbrellas, these vices, they all do something for us that allows us to not have to rely on God. When I use pride, it allows me to feel like I am enough on my own. I don't have to look at how God sees me or what God thinks about me. I, I, I'm going to find my own confidence. When, each one of these things allows us to kind of circumvent around the way that God wants to care for us. And generally speaking, we all have one primary vice or one primary kind of deadly sin that we wrestle with, and we occasionally dip our toes into the water of the other six. So generally speaking, there's like one that's kind of like our issue, my issue, your issue. There's one kind of main primary one. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Enneagram. Uh, the Enneagram, if you've not heard about it, it's, uh, it's a powerful tool for anyone that wants to lean into self-development or spiritual health, and part of, of going through that process is you, you start to learn what is the vice that I struggle with? What is the, the deadly sin? What is the, the primary issue that I wrestle with? And so it's a really helpful thing if you've, not, uh, if you've not looked at that. And you may be here today and already know, looking at this list, you may already know what your vice is. Uh, you probably all can think of someone else's vice. You're like, oh, I know. Greed, I know who that is. Uh, Frank, you know, whatever. There's, there's names that start to come up, but there's a reality for us that we have to do this inward work because we want to become who God has originally intended for us to be. We want to experience divine peace 
and balance and wholeness. We don't just want to manage the symptoms of pride or of greed or of gluttony or whatever it is. We want to say, hey, let, let me deal with this root issue so that I can actually see some things change in my life. Um, so what is pride? I, I want to take just another minute to really kind of dive into a better explanation. Pride essentially is the drive to be seen as superior to someone else. The drive to be seen as superior to someone else. There's kind of a, a, a textbook definition I want to read a little bit of. It says, uh, the prideful need others to acknowledge that they are right, that they're in charge and in control. They want to be liked, but they would rather be respected for having figured it all out and having it all together. Uh, they don't want to be doubted, questioned, or challenged because it calls their superiority into question. They think, it's not that we see it differently, it's that you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> uh, that one hit a little too close to home. Uh, maybe even to the point of uh, the prideful people letting a friendship end or losing a job instead of admitting that they were wrong. This is something that people struggle with when they wrestle with this, this, this vice of pride. Because they need it so badly, sometimes they'll become insensitive or inappropriate. The prideful can come off as snobbish, patronizing, condescending, rude, impatient, demanding, unkind. Should I keep going? Cruel, insensitive, pompous, egocentric, haughty, vain, and superior. So let's just pray. Um, no, this is, I mean, this is a textbook definition. This is kind of a, a big list of these are some of the things that can come up in people that are prideful, people that wrestle with this. Uh, pride manifests itself in, in many different ways. This, you know, what I just read is kind of the traditional understanding of pride. Most of those things, I mean, it's a long list, but I don't know that any of us would be surprised by those definitions of pride. Not many of us would be like, well, I never really thought of that as something that prideful people would wrestle with. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. That, that fits my concept of pride. Uh, but there are, what I've realized, there's more nuanced versions that many people wrestle with, and specifically that I've wrestled with. Um, when someone that I trusted a, a few years back first suggested that I have an issue with pride, I almost laughed. Um, because I, I tend to think of myself pretty lowly. I, I tend to not have a lot of confidence. And, and so this idea of being prideful, I was like, yeah, you got that one wrong. Um, but we started having these longer conversations because um, even though I didn't feel like I needed to be the best or be seen as successful, I didn't feel like I was snobby or condescending, um, I realized that some people wrestle with pride in the way that it causes them to be seen as better than others, but there's another more subtle strain of pride, specifically one that I wrestle with. This version of pride, this definition of pride, drives us to feel indispensable to others. So one of us causes us to feel so, like, obviously I'm better than you. I mean, look at this stage that I'm on. It's like, you got, you know, there's a sense of, like, better than. But there's another version of pride that is 100% pride and it makes me feel like there's no possible way you could do this without me. There's no way that I can have a girl's night out. My husband couldn't possibly handle the kids without me. There's no way I can take vacation from work. It, the department would fall apart if I wasn't there. And some of your jobs, that may be true. But there's this, there's this thing that starts to seep into our minds of saying, I am indispensable in this scenario in this relationship, in this company, in this conversation. There's no way that they could figure out how to solve this problem 
without me. This is pride because at the root of it, there's this sense of believing that you are the one that can solve, fix, heal, uh, whatever, whatever the word is. There's, a, there's something inside of us that, that kind of comes up to make us feel like we're indispensable. Pride can cause the secret belief that we alone know what's best for others and that we are indispensable in their life. Um, one author, and he's actually written a lot about the Enneagram, uh, Ian Morgan Cron, he wrote this. It's a little bit of a longer quote. Hopefully, that's a big enough screen. All right. Uh, pride reveals itself in the way uh, that they focus all their attention and energy on meeting the needs of others, while at the same time giving the impression that they have no needs of their own. The sin of pride comes into play in the way that they believe other people are more needy than they are and that they alone know best what other people require. They relish in the myth of their own indispensability. And this, as I said last week, we're starting off with, with the one that I struggle with. This is my vice. This is the, the ongoing battle that I have in so many different scenarios, in so many different situations, is this kind of inflated sense of my importance or indispensability in different relationships and conversations and situations to where I'll actually play down my own needs and my own struggles and my own challenges because I need to make sure that I can solve other people's. Ultimately, when you boil that down, it, that looks like pride. That's what pride does. There's a few other examples of this kind of brand or this version of pride as doing something good and being disappointed that others didn't notice it or celebrate you for it, uh, worrying about performing uh, a task because you're overly concerned about the approval of those watching, continuing to serve or help others in their needs while denying that your own needs exist acting indignant when other people don't think of you enough or think enough of you. Pride can be expressed through an inflated uh, sense of self-importance in the way that we serve others. That second list, does that sound like a little bit different than your normal version of pride? Is there anybody in there that's like wincing a little bit of like, oh, okay, you know, it's different. Because many of us, we don't think of ourselves as better than. I don't have it all figured. I don't have a giant savings account or the nice car. I'm not struggling to look like the best one in the room. But there's this other version, this other side of the coin that, that oftentimes we can wrestle with. And even if it's not your primary vice, this is something that can cause challenges for you. There's two primary brands of pride, just to kind of condense this. If your priority is being seen as superior, you're going to have to hide anything about you that might undercut that impression. You're going to need to drive away anyone who calls your superiority into question. Drive away anyone who refuses to believe that you're always right. It's an arrogant pride. It's pride of being the best. But if your priority is being seen as indispensable, you're going to become exhausted and burned out, resulting in a totally different struggle. It's a word that we've probably all heard, and most of us don't think of ourselves this way. So a word, codependency, is a sense that they can't possibly make it without me. He can't, she can't, they can't. I am indispensable in this situation, in this, situ in this scenario. 
Your value, worth, and meaning are found in helping and serving others. Selfless pride is the other version of pride. There's an arrogant pride, pride of being the best, and selfless pride is pride of being the most helpful or the most loved. One version says, you'll never be as good as me. The other version says, you can't possibly do it without me. And I've never known a single person in my life that's had both versions. Usually it's someone that's incredibly arrogant, that just kind of sees themselves as they've got it figured out, under control, dialed in. Or it's someone that very subtly, quietly, in the way that they are always present, always serving, always giving, always putting their own needs aside in order to make sure that everybody else is taken care of. There's this, there's this thought that you can't possibly do it without me. And that thought is still considered pride. And, and so I just want to take a break. How's everybody doing? Uh, some of these things, you start to, to see maybe glimpses of yourself in a mirror, glimpses of yourself on a slide or whatever it might be, and it can start to do things inside of us, and it's not always easy. And I just want to say, like, this is an ongoing work. There's nothing that will happen in this message or in this series that will cause you to defeat this. This is that ongoing process, like we talked about last week, of partnering with God to realize that we don't have to act this way, that this is not my master anymore. I can choose to go a different way. Pride is deadly because it leaves us unteachable, unreachable, and unchangeable. Relationships only flourish when people are authentic and honest. So the prideful find themselves becoming more increasingly isolated and alone. You could be the type of person, maybe you're the type of person like I am, I've experienced this in my life where you feel like you're giving and loving and serving and helping and everybody that comes into contact with and you're doing everything and if you ever just sat down on a sofa one day and be like, what the heck? I have poured all of it out for you people and I'm getting nothing. I feel so alone which is a bizarre thing for someone to feel when everything they do in their mind is to try and help other people. But ultimately what they're doing is they're isolating themselves because they're not being honest and authentic about their own needs. Because you know what? I have needs too. <laughs> this is a reality. I mean, it's a, it's a comical thing to say, but we all have needs. We all, have, we all need to be cared for and cared about and, and, and checked in on and all these types of things. And so, so some people that wrestle with this kind of pride, they, they pour themselves out to a point where they've refused to acknowledge that they have any needs and then they become frustrated because they feel alone and like nobody is checking in on them. This is problematic because close relationships are the best way to, to fight off the darker and more destructive parts of ourselves. Have you guys ever noticed, uh, and this happens a lot of times in churches, but it's not just churches. Have you guys ever noticed that usually when a leader, a pastor, a CEO, whatever it is, there's like a fall from grace. They have some sort of moral failure. It always can be traced back to there was something that they were secretly doing in isolation that they refused to talk about with anybody else. It's always traced back to this idea of keeping this, this isolated thing, this, this isolated experience in their life that they refused to be honest about. A story of privacy. But every story about restoration you know, a CEO or a pastor or a leader that's restored into their role 
it always has to do with them being uh, honest and exposing these things. It fights off the darker sides of pride. So how do we escape this vice, this trap? Because it trips all of us up. Last week we talked about the reality that we can't just quit a deadly sin. We can't just quit a vice, uh, but we have to uproot it with its counter virtue. We talked about Jesus in one of the most famous sermons he preached in Matthew. It's called the Beatitudes. And there's seven kind of Beatitudes that he talks about in this, pa- uh, in this sermon that each one of these provides a counter virtue to one of the deadly sins. So as you look at pride, envy, sloth, greed, lust, gluttony, I think that's it. Jesus talks about these beatitudes, and each one of these we can actually tie to and say, if I, if I try and pursue this beatitude, if I try and pursue this counter-virtue, then it'll help me up- uproot this other thing that I've been wrestling with, this thing even maybe in my subconscious I've been wrestling with. Matthew 5 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which, killer way to start a sermon, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, that's what everybody wants to hear. This is just the very first one of these Beatitudes, and and it's just a short chunk that we're looking at. We're going to look at more as we go on. But he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Nobody wants to be poor. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit. There's, there's no real desire for that. But he didn't say blessed are the poor in spirit because they are poor in spirit. He said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the message paraphrase has a, a little bit of a different version that I think kind of gives us some clarity. It says you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And this starts to clear some things up. When Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, he's starting to articulate this idea, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they don't think that they can do it all on their own. They don't think that they've got it all figured out, that they have all the answers, all the strength for themselves or for others in their lives. Jesus is teaching that this counter virtue of pride is to live in a way that creates space for growth and it creates space for God to show up in our lives. Being poor in spirit looks like intentionally admitting and choosing to live in the reality that you don't know everything and you can't do everything. It doesn't mean that you need to be depressed. That's not what poor in spirit is. It doesn't mean that you need to be poor. It doesn't need to mean that you need to be, it just means that there is This reality that you are not so confident in your ability to handle it all, to do it all, to know it all. There's this sense of understanding that I need something in my life. I need someone else or someone else uh, in a multiple sense. It's believing that the person that is across from you has something to teach you regardless of whether they're younger than you or older than you or from a different culture or speak a different language or make a different amount of money. It's a sense that I, I can learn from others, that I'm not the best of everything and that I don't need people to be under the impression that I am. It's learning to see that I am not indispensable to others. Or as one of my favorite modern philosophers put it, don't ever for a second get to thinking that you're irreplaceable. Let it burn, 
Okay. Uh, it's not that you don't matter to others. It's that you are not their savior. It's not that you are not a crucial part of this community, of your marriage, of your kids' lives, of your community, of your workplace. It's not that you are not vitally important. It's that you cannot solve all of the problems on your own. You are not smart enough or strong enough or wise enough or spiritual enough or whatever it is. It's this sense that you are not indispensable in that scenario. You are not their savior and you are not your own savior. Pride comes up all throughout the scriptures. Even in the Genesis account, as you start looking at the Garden of Eden and, and this perfect place, that word shalom, where everything was as it should be, divine peace and wholeness and balance. Satan came and, and, and the temptation that man fell into was this invitation to be made like God. This, this invitation into the belief that you can do this without him that you can do this without God, that you can be equal to, that you can handle things for yourself, by yourself. A lot of people refer to pride as the original sin, but it, it shows up all throughout the scriptures. In James chapter four, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote this, and he's actually kind of paraphrasing something that was written in the Psalms, but he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's interesting, because this word, uh, that the English word is opposed. The Greek word that they translated there is the word antitasso. And the actual, the literal translation is to rage in battle against or to be at war with. God rages in battle against the proud. That's like, that feels a little bit scary. But he gives grace to the humble. But it's not that God is at war with the person he is in, he's raging in battle against the pride. The pride is what is causing him to be unable to give grace. It's not that he doesn't want to give grace to proud, proud people. It's that he can't because they think that they've got it under control, because they think that they're strong enough or smart enough or whatever the thing might be. It's not that God is at war with you because he's against you. It's that God is at war with your pride because he's for you. He is fighting to break through the pride that we hold on to, this sense that we have it under control for ourselves and for others, this facade that we hold up in our lives. Pride fights against what God wants to do in our life. Another one of my favorite authors, Dan Allender, he said this. He said, the cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing. And no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. When we start to look at our pride, there is this sense for many of us that it is difficult to receive God's grace as a free gift because there's a part of me that believes that I can do it on my own. And so to accept grace is to admit that I can't. A free gift, a free offer of forgiveness, a free offer of grace for many of us in our spiritual lives is an ongoing challenge. We want to continue to work for our salvation. We want to continue to, to prove that we can be good, to prove that we're good enough or we're holy enough or that whatever the thing might be. But the reality is, is that God is offering us a free invitation into relationship, a free gift of grace, a free offer of forgiveness, and no price could be higher for arrogant people or for prideful people to pay. And so what does this mean for us on a practical level? The antidote 
to pride is something, as a, a phrase that I've heard used called confident humility. We look at this counter virtue that Jesus taught of, this blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This, this reality that blessed are those that, that are under the idea that they can't do it all themselves, that they don't have it all under control, that they have needs that they have to rely on God for. The antidote for us is this idea of confident humility. Um, humility in the recognition that we are not yet all that we should be, this sense of, I've made mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. I do not have perfect relationships. I have not solved all of my problems. I'm still a work in process. There's a sense of humility in that I've not arrived yet, which for some people that wrestle with pride, this is a difficult thing to be honest and authentic about. But we have to lean into this side of humility of, man, I need God to show up in my life. Confidence is the recognition of the unsurpassable love that God has for us and his desire to partner with us. Confidence is the recognition of the unsurpassable love that God has for us and that he wants to partner with us. And so when you take these two things together, confident humility, and if you could just imagine putting these together uh, for a second, this idea of living in a way of saying, I do not have it all figured out. I have some things i got to work through. I've got some major struggles, some vices, whatever these things might be. I don't have it all figured out. So there's humility there. And there's a confidence of knowing, but I know that God loves me with an unsurpassable love. That he looks at me and sees me as accepted and valued and worth. So it's not lowering, lowering ourselves and saying, I, I'm worthless and I'm worth nothing and I'm broken and I messed up. And it's also not elevating ourselves to a place of saying, man, I've got it all figured out. I really handled that situation nicely. More people should ask for my help. More people should ask for my advice. I could solve a lot of problems. You know, the president should call me. I, I can, I'd be happy to help figure out all the problems. Of our, you know, there, it's not one or the other. It's a blend of both where we say, I am broken but I'm still dearly loved and valuable. And I am still a work in progress. It's not one or the other, but it's both. It's not thinking too lowly of ourselves or too highly of ourselves. This is the reality of the gospel. This is the reality of what it looks like for us to embrace the, the good news of Jesus the shortest definition of, of what Jesus did that I've heard is that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And for any of us that wrestle with this idea of pride, on whichever side of the coin it might be, whether it's thinking that we are the best and we have it all totally figured out or whether it's thinking that we have the best answers and can solve anybody's challenges, the gospel message, the hope of Jesus is that he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's an admission that on my own, I cannot. It's choosing to live in a state of being poor in spirit, not mopey or depressed, but owning the reality that when I'm at the end of my rope, there's more room for God to show up and move in my life. 
There's more room for him to show up and move in other people's lives because I'm also not pretending I can solve all their problems either. One of the main ways that we can remind ourselves of this, this confident humility, is through something that the church has been doing for thousands of years, something that Jesus taught us to do and he told us to do it. It's something called communion. And so the band is going to come up in, in just a minute, and we're going to have an opportunity to take communion together. Um, in just a moment, they're going to come forward. They're going to pass trays down the aisles, and you can take some cracker, and you can take the juice. And I just want to invite you guys to hold on to that. We'll all take it at the same time. And at South Hills, uh, when we take communion together, we, we, call, we refer to it as an open table, meaning regardless of your faith background or where you're at, you are invited to experience this with us. Um, and so in just a minute, they're going to pass that. But, but like I said, this is something that Jesus taught us to do. They talk about it in 1 Corinthians. It says, on the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread in his hands. And after giving thanks to God, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Keep doing this so that you and all who come after you will have a vivid reminder of me. And after they had finished dinner, he took the cup. And in the same way, he said, the cup, this cup is the new covenant. It's executed in my blood. Keep doing this. And whenever you drink it, you and all who come after you will have a vivid reminder of me. And so there's this invitation when we take communion. The, the cracker represents Jesus' body, and, and the blood represents the, the cost, the price that was paid for us, this invitation into this new relationship, this new understanding of how God sees us and cares for us. And so when we do this, we get to lean into this reminder of confident humility, humility in that because of my brokenness, he gave his life. And confidence in that even though I was incredibly broken and still have struggles, Christ died for me. The value that he sees in me, it gives us a sense of value and of worth in ourselves. It's confident humility. And so as we take communion together, it reminds us to have this confident humility and to lean into that.